Welcome to the Feeling Good Podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Fabrice Nye, and joining me here in the Murrieta Studios is the creator of the team model, Dr. David Burns. Hi, David. Hi, Fabrice. So, good to see you. Oh, good to see you too, yes. It's a pleasure. Um, so what are we going to talk about today? You know, last time we, we gave kind of an overview of the team model and why you, you developed that. How it evolved from cognitive behavior therapy yeah, to address yeah. some of the shortcomings. CBT was was fabulous and did a lot. There's been yeah. more research on it probably than any form of psychotherapy in history. But it, it works for many people, but not everybody. And finding out why, the answer why is that, yeah. that's what led to uh, the development of, of team yeah. therapy. So, you know, I think that uh, we, we may want to, uh, to be a little bit more specific about the, the various components. So what are we going to talk about today? Well, we're, we'll go over the T equals testing. Uh, okay. In the last podcast, we mentioned T is testing, E is empathy, A is agenda setting, M is methods. Right. And this is the approximate linear sequence that you do things in a therapy session. Okay. And so you start out with testing. So we'll talk a little about the, uh, the testing today. And to some uh, listeners, it may seem, oh gosh, testing measurement, that's boring. I, I don't, I'm not interested in that. And when I've given this segment in, in workshops, I often title it uh, measurement, a boring topic with exciting implications. And huh. it, the, the, the testing we're going to talk about ha- has the, the potential not only to transform the clinical work of any therapist, all therapists who are listening to this podcast, it also has the potential to transform the field of psychotherapy from competing schools of therapy into the new data-driven science of psychotherapy. Now, that sounds a little bit uh, unusual to me um, because uh, I've done a lot of uh, testing, as you may call it, uh, what I would call assessments, where you know I give people a battery of tests like the MMPI-2 and things like this, just to kind of get a uh, diagnosis or really see whether there's you know, some personality issues or, or trauma issues or what have you. Uh, but typically, this is kind of like something I do up front, and then you know I don't worry about it too much, except if something else changes. So... Uh, how, how is that different in, in your model? Well, um, I think it's important to do assessment at, at intake before you begin actually clinical work with the person. And I use and have developed over the past 10 years at Stanford something called the Easy Diagnostic System, hmm. which is a survey that patients can take on their own uh, in the waiting room or, or at home. So it takes no time for the therapist and it kind of automatically diagnoses as not present, probably present, possibly present, or definitely present, 50 or 60 of the most common DSM d- diagnoses. Yeah, that's the kind of testing that seems familiar yeah, to me. right. And I'm no big fan of the DSM, but I, I've always felt a kind of medical legal responsibility to assign the correct di- diagnoses at intake. So you go over the patient's completed survey in a session. It takes five to seven minutes and you just tick off on the diagnostic summary sheet any diagnoses that are possible or or definite. And if they're definite, you can see from the patient's score if it's mild, moderate, or, or, or severe. Right. But some therapists who hear this podcast will uh, 
find that interesting and exciting. It's it's a, so you don't have to do a long diagnostic uh, hi, clinical history. Others will say I'm not interested in DSM at all, and and I say God bless you if that's where you're right. at. Yeah. Uh, but the most important part of the testing is what we do at every single therapy session. Beck showed, at the beginning and end, I should say, of every uh, therapy session, Beck, Beck oh, sho- showed in 1964 that you could measure depression for the first time with his Beck depression inventory. And that was revolutionary at the time because clinicians weren't used to thinking in quantitative ways. Uh, you know, someone is depressed or they weren't. And all of a sudden we had a test that could measure exactly how depressed the patient was. And I used to use the old Beck depression inventory when I started in clinical practice. And I made it my policy that I would never in my life see a patient without at least one psychological test at every session. And so I'd have them fill out the Beck depression inventory between sessions. And then they'd hand it to me at the start of the session. They'd take it at home. And I'd look at the score and I'd put the number in the chart and I could see if I was making progress or not. Initially, I was kind of skeptical, thinking that the Beck test would be better than nothing, but it wouldn't be very good, and that I had this idea the way I was trained to think that I was the expert. I know how patients are feeling. After using it for a a month or two, it began to dawn on me that patients were tremendously accurate and knowledgeable about how they were feeling, and that those scores were highly, highly accurate, and that my own perceptions were often way off off base. That was kind of a discovery for you, but it sounded like you made the decision to always use that uh, uh, index even before uh, you made that discovery. What what led you to doing that? Oh, well, it was because I had started out as a researcher. We had a, a depression research unit at the VA hospital, and we had to publish articles for scientific journals about depression and the chemical imbalance theory and all of that. And so we had to know how depressed our patients were. And so we used to test them every day with the old Hamilton rating scale for depression, which is an interview that takes about 15 minutes, and it's a terrible test that should never be used for anything. It's so ill-conceived, and drug companies still use it for research, and it blows my mind uh, that they would would do that. But but at any rate, it was time-consuming, but at least it gave us some feel. It it had some validity to Mm -hmm. how, how depressed patients were, and then we could you know, publish articles on what was affecting or not affecting depression severity. And so I was used to doing that from my research days. And when I went into clinical practice, I thought in a way every patient I see can be a little uh, a little research study. So I can begin to find out what, what's helping them and not helping them. And that was one of the things that, that really sold me on cognitive therapy initially, that I had a lot of patients who I was stuck with and I could see that their depression scores weren't changing. And then I used what was in those days, in the middle to late 1970s, the newly emerging cognitive therapy uh, techniques I learned from back and techniques I I created and began to see changes in in many patients. And and that that was extremely, extremely eye-opening for me. And I began to see, hey, there's ways you can work with patients that are effective and ways that, that are not effective. And then over the years, uh, I, I saw the shortcomings in the Beck test, not the least of which is, you know, we used to be able to use it for free. Uh, 
it was in the public domain. Right. And and then one day I got a letter in the mail, you know, if you use this test without paying a dollar and a half royalty, you're going to have something like a $10,000 fine or something like that. I see. And it was very, uh, very disturbing. And at the time, I was also using the Hopkins Symptom Checklist 90 with my patients, which was a kind of a research tool that you could use for free. And then that one got sold, and they wanted, you know, dollar or two dollars every time you gave it. And I started... I used to see 70 patients a week, and I started counting up all the costs of using these tests and came to more than $10,000 a year. And I thought, you know, I'll bet we could create some much better tests. These tests aren't even very good. And and, and then we could use tests to have really beautiful tools to assess assess patient progress. And and so what what we have come up with is little five-item scales that have reliabilities and validities in the mid-90s, as opposed to, you know, the Beck test has about a 65% reliability and validity is, is below that. So so you're, you're saying that you developed a, a scale of your own that is better than... Oh, the much back. better, yeah. And, and, and we, there's a, a, you know, I've developed several depression surveys, but what we've discovered is a five-item survey will give you all the information that, that, that you need and patients can fill it out and complete it and interpret the score in less than 15 seconds. And so now the way it's evolved, the... The system we're using now, I think, is state-of-the-art of measurement. Is let's say I'm working with you, I would tell you to come in five minutes early. If you have a two o'clock session, come at you know five minutes before two, and then in the waiting room, you'll find a clipboard and you know a stack of what I call the brief mood survey, and you fill it out based on how you're feeling at this moment in, in the waiting room. Okay, and it includes uh, depression. A brief depression test, a suicidal urges test, anxiety test, anger test, and then a couple others that you can use if you want a relationship satisfaction, say you're having trouble in your marriage or your, your mm-hmm. intimate partner. Um, and there's also a positive emotions test. And this, and then when the patient, and it takes 30 seconds for the patient to, to fill this out, and then they hand it to me at the beginning of the session, and I can see exactly how the how the patient is feeling well um i'm beginning to have some uh, some wonderings here about okay well what why don't you just ask the the patient when they come in and say you know how are you doing today well that's that's what we seems we a little bit warmer than the cold uh, you know well, questionnaire yeah that's one of the paradoxes is you think a test is kind of cold and indifferent but it actually creates much more warmth in the therapeutic relationship because a person can be looking totally happy and have you laughing and say they're feeling great but when they fill out the test you, you that person might be as severely depressed as someone in a inpatient unit getting electroconvulsive therapy the, the 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 therapist's capacity to judge how patients feel is is very inaccurate. I, I did a study at Stanford when I was uh, validating the easy diagnostic system, and I had experts sit down with roughly 170 newly admitted inpatients, and they interviewed the patients for two to three to four hours about how the patients were feeling. How depressed are you? How anxious are you? And this was to validate the easy diagnostic system. So they were trying to assign like major depressive disorder, borderline personality disorder, all this, this kind of stuff. And then 
I, I had a twist to the study that the participants were not aware of that, that what the purpose was. But at the end of this diagnostic interview, I had the patient and the interviewer turn their chairs with backs to each other and then fill out my brief mood survey. So based on how are you feeling at this moment? Right. So the patients are saying, here's how depressed I am, how suicidal, how angry, how anxious. Yeah. And the interviewers filled out the same scale, guessing the patient's answers based on an intensive emotion-focused interview. And, and the interview was actually asking them what their feelings were, their, their yeah. experiences, and so Yeah, on. that's all they were asking about. Right. Was, so they, they should know what was going on with the patient, right? Absolutely. That, that's what you'd think. And also, uh, I asked the uh, patients to rate the interviewer on how warm and empathic, how, how trustworthy, uh, okay. that, that, type, that type of thing. That, that, that was an empathy scale. And also, how helpful was, was this interview? So, so you had the patient uh, fill out the mood survey, which is about themselves, and then you had them fill out uh, evaluation that's about the therapist. Yeah, okay. and the therapist also rated how warm they, th they thought they were, how helpful uh, they, they thought they were. Uh, and, so the and so therapist forth. rated themselves. Yeah, how the, okay. and we're guessing how the patient would, would rate okay, them, yeah. how, how you came across to this uh -huh. patient. And then it was just simple uh, uh, to see what is the accuracy of these experts. Because if you look at the correlation and take the square of the correlation, say, between the patient's reported depression and the expert's perception yeah. of the depression, yeah. let's say if the correlation is 0.9, that's an 80%. Uh, nine times nine is 81. That's 81 percent accurate. Right. Well, the shocking thing, and in workshops, I, and I I could ask the people right now, like, how accurate do you think these experts were? How accurate do you think you are? Do you do you, do you think it's 75 to 100 percent? Do you think it's 50? Your accuracy is 50 to 75 percent? Do you think your accuracy is 25 to 50 percent? Below 25 percent. Okay. And most people. When I present this in workshops, and the, the hands go up, they 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 think they're fifty to seventy five percent. They're consciously so they're, optimistic. They're pretty on track as to how their yeah. patient is doing. And, and some maybe, of the skeptics will yeah. say, "May it's only twenty five to fifty percent." Yeah. But the actual results, everything came out under ten percent. Oh, like uh, almost close to zero. Right? Yeah, there so, was almost nothing that the experts got right. The the accuracy on detecting changes in the patient's depression, say from the start to the end of the interview, was three percent accuracy. The ability to detect anger was zero percent. Suicidal urges was was zero percent. Hmm. And when when did you do that? Oh, about two or three years ago, when I was. Uh, oh, so recently. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. And and how many? Uh, how many, what was the size of your sample? Well, in the total study, there were 170 newly admitted inpatients, but for this phase of the study, I, we had about 50% of them. There were about 75 or 85 uh, patients in, mm -hmm. in that study. And how many clinicians? Oh, I'm trying to remember. It was probably five or six or seven, okay. so, something like that. Um, Maybe those five or six were particularly bad. <laughs> well, that's one, one can hope. But then we've also done the same study informally in, in the Tuesday training group at Stanford and asking people 
in clinical practice to repeat the experiment with your own patients mm-hmm. if you've never used these these scales and and they also report that they that they don't they don't get it right and I can give you an example um, of, of just how off we can be but but why are we doing this? Then at the end of the session, you see we have the patient take the test again in the waiting room before they go home right. and leave it for the therapist. And they also rate you on empathy. So if you're a clinician, you can see for the first time how much improvement did the patient have in, in this session. Yeah. Uh, how empathic were you? Just to give you a, just an example that happened this Tuesday, we um, we did consultation in the, in the Stanford training group, and we have our trainees rate us just as, as I have patients rate me at every single session. Okay. And we did a consultation, and, and, and one of the trainees was stuck with a couple she's trying to, to, to treat. And as you know, troubled couples can bash each other's brains yeah, in, yeah. and you try to help terrible. them with, with different techniques, yeah. and they just sabotage the techniques yeah. and attack each other. And she was very disturbed and felt like a failure because because she wasn't she was stuck with this 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 couple and we had a wonderful wonderful consultation and she felt inadequate and she cried and we we turned that around for her and she was laughing at the end and gave her fantastic feedback on why she was stuck with 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 this couple and then at the end you know they rate they rate the evening, and the ratings, everyone in the group is just like sky high. It's a fantastic evening. It was great to see, but she, but she rated it the helpless as, you know, not, not the greatest. Okay. And it just blew my mind because I thought, wow, what a fantastic consultation that was. She got what she needed, but, but she hadn't. On the personal level, she thought it was fabulous. She, her depression disappeared and her anxiety and sense of inadequacy. But she still didn't know what to do with her couple. Yeah, and I didn't realize that. I thought we'd made it, you know, crystal clear. And then I've had the same thing happen. And then I can, that's information I never would have would have had. And, and so even as a teacher, then I can go back to her and say, wow, it sounds like you didn't get what you needed. Let's let's talk talk further. And it's the same thing clinically. It blows your mind, the, the information you, you get. And the practical thing that I'm driving at here is if you want to be a great therapist, you've got to know how you're coming across to, to your patients and use your patient's measurements to, to, to guide the therapy, and your patients will become your, your best teachers. But it's, it's shocking because you find out stuff that, that will be, be very disturbing to you. And I can give you an example of, of where I yeah. missed in a negative way and in, in, in a positive way where I totally miscalculated. Yeah, I'd love to hear that. I'm, I'm um, on the voluntary faculty in the Department of Psychiatry at Stanford, mm-hmm. so I volunteer a certain amount of teaching and other things to help out in the department every year. Yeah. And one of the things I did was to create the cognitive therapy daily group program in the inpatient unit because it was all psychopharmacology and electroconvulsive therapy, and there wasn't you know a, a lot of psychotherapy mm-hmm. going on. And after I created the program, I went in once a week to kind of direct the groups and teach the psychologist who was running them and the nurses and, you know, like make sure it's working with this very, very difficult inpatients, suicidal and and, and whatnot. Well, this one day, a woman, uh, you know, at the beginning, I, I get their moods. I have them take the brief mood survey. It takes 30 seconds, and then I can empathize with each one. And this one woman had severe 
on depression and suicidal urges and anxiety and anger in all of the categories. Right, so she was way up there. Yeah, and she had the negative thought that she was a worthless human being, so she should commit suicide. And I asked in the group, how many of you have that, you know, and all the hands went up. I said, well, let's work on this this thing to, today. And so everyone was excited about that. So I worked with her on her negative thoughts and, and used powerful techniques, externalization of voices and various things. And I could see that we just knocked the ball out of the park and that she just lived me and her symptoms all went to zero by the end of the session. I thought, boy, this is something I can talk about in a workshop, uh, how powerful these techniques are, even for the, the most severe of the most severe. And at the end, then and, I had... And you knew that from, from testing her. Well, I had tested her at the beginning, yeah. but that was my feeling in okay. working with her. Like she was laughing and happy at the end, and it was like it was this big celebration. I'd worked this miracle on the inpatient unit. Uh -huh. And then at the end, uh, then I'll fill out how depressed are you, how anxious are you, et cetera. So we, we did it again. And, uh, and then they, they leave, and they, they turn them in. And I couldn't wait to get her ratings. So, so you... You wait until your patients are gone before you look at the, the ratings? But in this case, they filled them out right in the room. Yeah. And then they handed it to me as they walked out. So when she handed hers to me, I could look at it. Yeah. And she was still 10 feet away, 5 feet away from me. Yeah. And I was shocked because she had put the highest symptoms humanly possible. She had put extreme now on depression. So when it went up. It went up. It was the opposite of what I had, had, had thought. And she, her scores were the highest, the worst a human being can have. Like, like I'm going to commit suicide today. I'm hopelessly depressed. I'm a totally worthless. I'm filled with rage. I'm panicky. And then on the back, they turn it over and rate, rate you on empathy and helpfulness. And yeah. she gave the lowest possible empathy and helpfulness ratings. Uh, you know, the empathy scores goes from zero to 20. Essentially, she's telling you you failed, even though you thought you did But so it was great. worse than that, because on our empathy scale, Hitler could at least get a seven out of 20. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and she gave me a zero. You know, I've never seen anything anywhere close to zero. So I said to her, Marilyn, goodness, you filled this out incorrectly. And it's easy to get confused when you fill out these oh, tests. Oh, you thought she, she had flipped it over. Yeah, and, yeah. I thought she'd want to put all zeros on the mood and all perfects on the empathy. Like, I did so great. What? <laughs> yeah, and I said, would you correct this before you go? This is a research study, and we don't want to foul up the database. And she looked at it, at, and she said, Doctor, there, there's no mistake here. And I said, what, I said, what are you talking about? We, we had a fantastic session just now. And she said, well, good for you, maybe. And I said, what are you talking about? And she said, well, when you said blah, 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 it really hurt my feelings. And I had no idea that that, that had happened. I, she had lost her husband and her job in the same week. Yeah. She was fired, and her husband moved out and said he was going to get divorced. And I had made this statement, you know, we measure our, our self-esteem on our being loved, Mm -hmm. and, and being productive. Okay. And so what you had was kind of like a, a double whammy, and I can imagine that your suffering is just unbearable. Well, when I used the expression double whammy, she thought I was making fun of her. Hmm. And, and I had, had no idea. And so we sat down and talked that through, and she was very gracious and was able then to, to connect. But 
that shows an extreme example of how off the therapist's perceptions can be. And therapists listening to this probably don't believe what I'm saying, that your, your perceptions will be this this off also. In, in many, if not most cases, you think you know how your patients feel, but, but you don't. And then you can make the opposite mis- mistake as well. Can I give you an example of that? Yeah, I'd love to hear that. The next week I went into Stanford and there was a woman, I was trying to find out who wanted help, so I gave them the brief mood survey and this woman scored the highest in every mood category. She had just been uh, transferred from the intensive care unit where she'd made a nearly successful suicide attempt. And then when Mm -hmm. she was medically stable, they they sent her to the uh, locked unit, actually, of the the inpatient hospital. And she was in the therapy group. And so I was looking at people's scores. I said, boy, your scores are really high. I don't know. Maybe that's something we could work on in the group today tell me a little about yourself. And she says, well, I have borderline personality disorder, and this is my eighth suicide attempt. Hmm. And the next time, time I, it's going to be a completed suicide. Right. I'm not going to fail it, at this again. And she went on to explain that she had, she was an intravenous amphetamine addict, hmm. and she was in rehab in a some kind of treatment facility, and she relapsed and used amphetamines, and so they threatened to kick her out of the program, so she said she retaliated by making a suicide attempt. And and I asked her about her negative thoughts, and just like the woman the week before, she had a thought like, I'm a worthless piece of SH, yeah. and uh, I, I should kill myself. Uh, life is not worth li- living. And I said, well, I, I don't know. I said, again, how many of you have this thought in the group? And all the hands went up. I said, well, maybe we, we could work t- together. You, you told me you've only had psychopharmacology and, and supportive therapy where the therapist listens. But I don't know if you're familiar with cognitive therapy. That's what we were calling it in those days. This was okay. about 10 years back before team had emerged and then she started like swearing at me and saying she'd heard of cognitive therapy and it's a bunch of BS and where did I get off and I could go screw myself and you know really I, I felt humiliated just like and she was just livid with rage I thought well I, got, I don't think she I'm going to work with her in the group today she doesn't seem like she wants help and so I worked with a woman on the opposite side of the table we were seated at a big round table about 12 so you ended up not working with her no i was terrified of of her and she clearly didn't want help yeah and this other woman had a similar thought i I worked with her but all during the group i could feel the the hatred coming to to me from this from this patient i was afraid even to look at her evil vibe yeah yeah that's right and uh, but this other woman was very responsive and we had a we had an excellent group and and then i they fill out the end of session ratings, and I I hate to look at it when I know it's going to be bad, yeah. but I force myself to, um, and so I tremblingly got this woman's feedback, this who had been shouting at me at the beginning of the group, and I was shocked when I looked at it because all of the uh, mood things had gone to zero. Oh, so it worked. Uh, well, I hadn't been working Something with worked. her. She was just sitting there right, okay. hating me, I thought. And I turned it over, and empathy was a perfect score. Helpfulness was a perfect score. And then at the bottom, the patients write out, was there anything that turned you off in, during the group or that you disagreed with? And she put the word nothing. Huh. 
And I said, was there anything, it says, was there anything you liked or was helpful? And she said, dear Dr. Burns, um, at the beginning of the group, I was so angry and uh, devastated. But when you worked with that other woman, I felt like you were working with me. And I've never heard of cognitive distortions before. I hmm. always thought it was that I was a bad person, hmm. and I'd never heard of all-or-nothing thinking or should statements or self-blame or overgeneralizations. Yeah. And to tell you the truth, my depression has disappeared for the first time in my life. This is the first happiness I've ever experienced since, That's amazing. since I was born. God bless you, Dr. But you had Burns. no idea until, until no. you got the feedback. Until I read that. And if I hadn't gotten that feedback, I would have avoided her on the unit. I wouldn't have wanted to look at her or yeah. be close to, close to her. Yeah. And those are severe examples of a phenomenon that happens with therapists um, all the time in clinical practice. You think you know how your patients are feeling, but... But but you don't. Your accuracy is not is not up there. And on the positive side, if you're willing to begin to use some kind of assessment scale, it can transform your clinical work because our the system we use is like an emotional X-ray machine. Now, I I I hear that, and and uh, you know I'm, I know that it's true. But I think that a number of therapists listening to this may go, no no, I I know my patients really well. And that doesn't apply to me. Yeah. Well, what would you say to those people? Well, God, God bless you. And, and at some point, you want to give it a try. You, you might do the experiment of, of give the brief mood survey to 20 patients in a row that you see in a week. And have them, don't do the before session testing like we do. Just have them fill it out at, at the end of the session. Okay. And fill it out yourself and, and estimate, you know, your understanding of how the patient is feeling at, at this moment. And then look at the correlation, and I think you'll see it, it's the same as what what I saw in my study at Stanford that your perceptions just are are not are not accurate, hmm. and that has tremendous uh, cl clinical Im implications. Uh, not not only does having the information allow you to fine tune your your work. See, if I'm working with you and you're not being helped, I don't care because I've got so many techniques and so many ways to shift gears that if, if we're not on track, then I can get back on track with okay. you. But I have to know it, and I have to have the humility and courage to, to, to look at that. The same is true in teaching as well. And maybe our radio broadcast will get feedback from people, what they like and, yeah. and what, what they don't, don't like. But, now, uh, yeah, uh, go ahead. You're talking about you know, people trying this out for themselves, like therapists trying this out for, this, for themselves. But we're, what is this brief mood survey you keep referring to. Where, where is that? I mean, okay. Well, it's a single piece of paper. It, uh, therapists who are interested in using it, I'm not trying to sell my, my tools so much, but just the concept of measurement. There's a lot of tools out there competing for, for therapist attention, but in my, uh, I, I market a therapist toolkit to therapists that has hundreds of pages of psychological tests and treatment tools that therapists can photocopy and use for the rest of your life. Uh, once you buy a toolkit, it's, it's free, so you don't have to be paying these royalty, royalty fees. And the, the brief mood survey, the generic one, there's you know 70 psychological tests in there, but it's, it's, it's one piece of paper printed on both sides. Mm -hmm. And on the front side, it's depression, suicide, 
anger, anxiety, and either positive feelings or relationship satisfaction before session and after session. Okay. And then when you turn it over, there's the five-item empathy scale that they fill out after the session, the five-item helpfulness scale, satisfaction with the session, if they had negative feelings during the session, uh, and, if, and, and the scale for how honest they were in, in filling, out, filling out the survey. And then they can also write at the bottom what they disliked and liked. And so you as a therapist can suddenly see, pick that up, they leave in the waiting room, they go home, you pick it up, and you can see exactly how you did in all of these different dimensions and address those issues when you see the patient the next time. Uh, David, something I was thinking since you were doing that, uh, that study with uh, the psychiatry department. You know, psychiatrists uh, are, are MDs. And when I go to see a doctor, you know, one of the things that they do, probably the first thing they do, is uh, they take my pulse, my uh, oh, yeah, blood right. pressure, right. my temperature. And uh, this is kind of like a routine thing for me when I go see a doctor. Absolutely. Now, I've gone to therapists myself many times. I've never experienced that. Yeah. The, one of my uh, classmates in the residency program at Penn in the 70s was John Rush. And he went his separate way. He went more into biological psychiatry, although he was the uh, first author on the, on the uh, first cognitive therapy outcome study that was done. Uh, but he presented a grand rounds at the Stanford uh, Department of Psychiatry just a few months back. And he, coincidentally, has gotten into the same thing that, I, that I've uh, gotten into is measurement and testing. And he was speaking from the biological perspective, not the psychotherapy perspective. Mm-hmm. But he, he was arguing that uh, psychiatry and psychology are measurement-free zones, that, yeah. that we're not measuring anything the way you do in the rest of, of medicine and the way yeah. you do in science and that, it, that it's not right. And he was showing how even if you're prescribing medications, how this simple assessment test every session can really revolutionize clinical practice. And I'm, 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 I'm totally in agreement with that. And, and I sometimes say to people in workshops, uh, if, if, how many of you require your patients to take at least one psychological test between every single therapy session as a minimum requirement if they're going to see you. Probably nobody. Well, it's generally one out of 100 or what, one out of 200, you know, something, very few. If they've been to a previous workshop of mine, you know, a few hands will go up. But it's, it's very, very few. And then I say, if you had pneumonia and, and uh, you know, a burning fever and coughing up blood and phlegm and shakes and how many of you would go to a medical doctor who didn't believe in the use of the thermometer, x-ray, blood, yeah. blood tests, and no hands go up? And I say, well, you've got a kind of double standard going. When, when you're the patient, you, you demand the doctor use the scientific method. The history is important. The physical exam is important. But you want that doctor to be guided by sound lab tests. But when you're the therapist, you're uh, kind of flying by the seat of your pants, and I think in the old days, you could get away with it. But I think we're, as we move into the future, uh, th- this is going to be required of, of mental health professionals. But aside from that issue, I think you can do yourself and your patients a tremendous favor by beginning to use either the type of assessment tests I've developed, which I, I think are, are state-of-the-art, really, 
or any any assessments that you think will be suitable for for your clinical practice. Well, this brings up a question, and uh, this may be a little bit beyond the pill here, but uh, uh, since you know, as therapists, we in a way work with the brain. We're not brain surgeons, but uh, why don't we go and look inside, like do some kind of imaging, or I don't know. Uh, that that would seem like the thing to do, since. Uh, we're about uh, healing the brain in a in a sort of way. Yeah, people get really really excited about brain scans, thinking this is somehow making things more more scientific. And yeah. certainly, brain imaging is a good a good tool for research. I'm not aware of any valid clinical uses at this point of of any type of brain scanning. What you're really looking at is, is blood flow in the brain. Uh, patterns of blood f- flow, activation of different uh, yeah. brain brain regions. But the like, take, take my my depression test is 0.95 accurate. It's 95 percent accurate. It can be completed in 15 seconds, and it can, the cost would be a penny, you know, for the piece of paper that you've hmm. photocopied it on. And, and, and that's going to be an accurate showing you how the patient is feeling inside. Brain scans will not be giving you that information. Brain scans don't go too much beyond right now telling us simply that the brain exists and that it does different stuff. But brain scans can't tell us what's normal or what's abnormal uh, in, in psychiatry. And... Um, they they can't also they 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 can't be used to track uh, clinical uh, progress or or to make di- diagnoses. Well, we may have to bring in a, uh, a neurologist guest at some point for the two of you to debate this. I don't think there would be a debate. I, I think the the top uh, brain imaging people would agree. In fact, I, I I work with some of them and do statistics for some of the brain research people at Stanford, and yeah. they, they they say uh, I, I'm really quoting them. Uh, in, in this regard, that there there are really no clinical need for for brain scan. But I you know I started out in brain research, and I'm excited about the the future of of, of brain research. But I think right now people are kind of getting ahead of the curve. You know, the same thing happened around the turn of the 20th century, about 1900 to 1910. Phrenology was big at the time. And people thought by the shape of the head, we can see personality patterns. And people read all kinds of things into that, got all, all excited about it. But I, I don't mean to be critical of neuroscience. You know, I've done a lot of neuroscience, and I'm excited about neuroscience. But I, I think we sometimes oversell things. Okay. Well, that that sounds like a, a good place to to wrap up. One thing I wanted to add is that uh, I have used um, some of your uh, testing tools myself in my practice, and uh, I have to say that the, the one that seems to um, to work really well for me is the after session evaluation because I get to to see how uh, the session was received by the patient and uh, and when there's a, a deviation uh, some weeks that gives me something to really bring into the session the next time and I found that really valuable yeah the uh, I know you are a great clinician Fabrice and have beautiful and and empathy skills and therapeutic skills, and I, I know that you're getting uh, on the empathy scale perfect scores much of the time 
if not most of the time, from, from your patients, which is, which is great. Sometimes when therapists hear about these tools, they think, oh, my patients won't be honest with me. Uh, they'll, they'll just tell me what, what they think. That's I what I used hear. to think in the beginning, though. Yeah. They're just going to be, want to be nice. Yeah, but it, it turns out the opposite of the, is true. When most clinicians, like people listening to this podcast, use my scale for the first time clinically, they report getting at least 50% failing grades on the empathy scale from you know 50% of all their sessions. And most report getting failing grades on every scale from every patient at every session. So this this can be a bit of a shock to the system. You're, 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 the problem is your patients won't be honest. The problem is your patients w- will be honest. Which I see that as a positive. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. then you get a chance to do repair if you need to. Absolutely. If you set your, your ego aside, it can yeah. be a tremendous opportunity for, for learning. But we all have a sense of pride, a sense of shame. And it can be painful to get to see, to use these scales and to suddenly see the truth for, for the first time. But if you have the courage, it can, be, uh, it can transform your clinical practice. Well, I hope that uh, some people out there decide to try this out and see if it can actually change their clinical practice. Uh, if I'm right, you know, in uh, some of your books, like uh, Feeling Good or When Panic Attacks, you, you describe some of those uh, instruments? Yeah, they can. People are interested. You can see, uh, you know, feeling good, the feeling good handbook, when panic attacks, the ten days of self esteem. You you can see some of the earlier, earlier versions of these scales, kind of how how they're set up. They're in fourth grade to fifth grade language. They're user friendly. They're real easy to take. Therapists with a serious interest might want to go to my website, feelinggood.com, and take a look at the order form for the therapist toolkit, because if you get a toolkit, then then you're uh, licensed to reproduce all of these assessment and treatment tools for for the rest of your life without having to pay royalties. So that's just one option to check out. There's a lot of psychological tests that that people can use in clinical Uh settings. And, uh, you know, I, I'm aware myself of uh, other instruments that do not, uh, you know, come from, uh, from your model, but uh, uh, Scott Miller, I think, has, uh, has published some instruments that also do this type of measurement. Oh, absolutely, and I applaud what, what, what he's doing. I, I gave a uh, talk at the Evolution of Psychotherapy Conference a, a couple of years back, and yeah. then they had this little autograph table where you sign books you know and this fellow came up to the table and said oh can I get your autograph and 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 he says I've been a fan of yours Uh, you know when I was uh, uh, doing my internship in clinical psychology I used all your scales Uh and it just transformed my my clinical career and you're one of my heroes and I said oh that's okay I'm glad to meet you what's your name he says oh I'm Scott Miller so he's he's definitely picked up on that, and yeah. I I totally uh, support his his efforts. He's he's yeah. he's he's promoting the gospel as well. Yeah, so I think that that's wonderful, and you know, there's uh, more than one way to skin the cat. Yep. I hope Hobie is not listening. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, David, I think that was a very enlightening uh, session, and uh, we'll uh, I think next time we'll be talking about the empathy part, right? Fantastic. Um, but we'll close for today, and uh, um, people can go to your website if they want to know more, feelinggood.com. So thank you very much for talking with us today. Thank you. Bye-bye.